Welcome to the Property Podcast from EG. I'm Jess Harold, and this time I bring you the latest in our weekly EG interview series. You can read my interview with Bree Stevens Hall QC in print and online, but here you can listen to our full discussion. And Bree, one of the leading barristers in her field and co-head of Hardwick Chambers, has plenty to say worth listening to. Whether it's on the impact of the pandemic on real estate and landlord and tenant relations, or on diversity, inclusion, and the current state of LGBTQ plus awareness in the workplace. Over the next 40 minutes, you will hear her field queries on these and other topics, including her own taste for thrill-seeking adventures. But first, Bree had a question for me. How informal and full-on do you want me to be? As informal and as full-on as you'd like to be, I think. Yeah, we, we like I, a bit of... I tend character. to be very... <laughs> yeah, we'd like to be yeah forthright. That's good. We want opinions and views. Excellent. Good. So yes, yeah, so uh, we're fast approaching twelve whole months of disruption uh, as a result of COVID nineteen. How has it affected the way that you work? Um, in terms of work as a barrister, mm-hmm. uh, working at home, which was certainly not something I did during the working week. A lot of the weekend, but not in the working week. Um, so it means I'm completely set up in at home in a way I never was. Um, it's speeded up the shift I was trying to make towards, mm-hmm. I won't say paperless, <laughs> reduced paper. It certainly significantly increased that. And actually, a funny thing. I very early on in my career when I realized I wanted to do property bought myself a magnifying glass for looking Mm -hmm. at old deeds and things suddenly I realized I needn't have been using it for quite some time now because when you've got electronic documents you can magnify them (laughs) I don't know why I didn't think of that before so binned my magnifying glass Um, missing site visits I've only Mm -hmm. had two in the last 12 months Um, yeah Virtual hearings. I haven't had an in-person hearing since, yeah, this time last year, February, early March. Um, but conferences, I mean, there, there was a bit of a pause at the beginning in terms of volume of work, but actually it's picked up and now it's absolutely full on. Um, so that that's my barristering work. Mm-hmm. And, but you also uh, sit as a judge of the, the first tier tribunal. Yeah. Uh, how has your judicial work been impacted? Hugely. I mean, mm. the the I actually was in the last day when they decided to close the building, <laughs> doing box work, um, and the building has been closed for a significant portion of the last twelve months. Um, and, and what's amazing across the courts and tribunals, and because I sit as a JAC commissioner, I sort of have a sense of what's going on across, across the piece, if you like, mm-hmm. is the variety. So sort of unsurprisingly, Court of Appeal and the High Court got up and running much, mm. much quicker and have been um, properly resourced to do that. But even across some tribunals got there very, very quickly, others much much slower county courts across the country certainly we're seeing in chambers some were getting there with um, remote hearings sort of within the first six to eight weeks others really really struggling Mm -hmm. Um, and very different attitudes about forcing people to go into court and do it in person or not huge range across Mm. the country so it's a very you know looking at chambers as a whole which I have to as joint head it's a very varied experience and Mm -hmm. very patchy shall we say (laughs) 
and a lot of problems being stored up. And because obviously, you know, a key part of an effective legal system is consistency, obviously. So that brings considerable yeah. problems to different different court users having a different experience. Yeah, um, I don't think it, there's any resulting inconsistency in decision making, but huge variety and variation in the user's experience, the court user's experience and the professional the practitioners experience of trying to work with the courts and certainly our practice team you know been tearing their hair out because quite often you you don't know till the day before whether a hearing is in person or Mm -hmm. remote so you sort of do I gear up to actually travel somewhere in covid conditions or what Mm -hmm. so it's been it's been an interesting time what do you think will be some of the lasting impacts of the pandemic both in terms of your way of working and the operation of courts and tribunals um well in just the way i said about electronic paper i think for everyone apart from a few diehard dinosaurs <laughs> um it has forced a speeding up of what technology was bringing um and in, interestingly for us in chambers we were in the process of looking for a new building and thinking about what we needed and how we would want a building fitted out so it was fit for the next 20 years and whilst I would not have chosen to be in this Covid year whilst negotiating a new lease and then planning a fit out of the building in many ways I think it's been hugely beneficial because Mm. our insight into what the future is, is is so much better than it was this time last year so I think there will be Certainly for procedural hearings, the vast majority, I think, will be online, Uh, probably never go back to being in person or if they do, just in those places that are not well resourced until they're brought up to speed. And it will be trials and maybe some heavier um, procedural hearings that are sort of more than one day, multi-day hearings that, that take place in person. But I think other than taking evidence from witnesses there there's little to recommend Mm. going back to the uh in-person and we all know being in the property sector that um the relevant government departments have been very keen at selling off the buildings (laughs) that courts and tribunals are in so it will be every encouragement to them to carry that process on Mm -hmm. um but I think what they will now really know, which has got to be good in the, in the longer run, is that you have to properly resource in terms of the technology, yeah. um, the ability to provide a service. There, there is a problem around witnesses, though. I attended a seminar that was put on um, by the family courts just out of interest. They made it open to everyone. And there's been some research there that suggests litigants in person and in some cases even represented parties in family proceedings were not understanding what was happening and weren't able to engage in the way they would if they were with their lawyers. Um, So I think, and, and we'd already come to the view that we were likely, even in a world of remote hearings, quite often to nevertheless have to be with our client. Mm in a space where even if we're using two rooms that we can get together and talk and explain things so that it won't be all you know everybody in in a separate space many many miles from each other 
And obviously the, the crisis has had a, a severe and in many cases devastating impact on real estate, uh, causing considerable pressures in particular uh, in the landlord and tenant um, sphere. Uh, much of the emphasis has, has been on that need for landlords and tenants to communicate and cooperate on issues such as unpaid rent. Uh, to what extent do you think that is working? Um, so far, it seems to be working reasonably well. <laughs> um, I think the, the, so the, the cases that have come across my desk, and obviously I'm not transactional, I'm dispute, it's when they're going full on, mm, yeah. have been actually where there is a tenant that is a major outfit, shall we say, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, who are really putting the screws on a landlord who, you know, it, it's a smaller outfit or individuals, it's their pension. Um, and, you know, the, the COVID rationale goes so far. It depends what sector you are. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, certainly I know from looking around my profession that, and we after all are a service industry, mm-hmm. that, um, for instance, construction hasn't batted an eyelid. <laughs> disputes have carried on regardless but you only have to look around to see that to a large extent the activity of the construction uh, industry has been I'm not saying it's not been impacted but Mm. much less than other sectors Um, so I think there are some occasions where people have sort of thought oh this is an opportunity Mm. (laughs) Um, where it may not be the reality of how it's hitting their sector but undoubtedly there are sectors you know I mean retail it's hugely, hugely problematic. How is that going to recover? Um, hospitality, mm-hmm. you know, and there I think where landlords know exactly what's happening to those sectors, by and large, there is cooperation. So mm-hmm. where I'm seeing the disputes are more where it's another sector and it's a bit more questionable whether <laughs> there really is quite so much of a problem. But I think what we have is a storing up of a lot more problems further down the line. Yeah, because obviously the the moratorium on 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 forfeiture and uh, on uh, commercial rent arrears recovery and yep. winding up petitions will end at some point. Exactly, and and when that happens, do you foresee to use a, a legal cliche the floodgates opening? Um, I think there'll be a lot of blood on the uh, stair carpet. Um, if I put it that way, I think we've still really to battle through the arguments about the extent to which the cessation of rent clauses that are fairly standard, there's very little variation, will really work. And for me, there are four different, well, more permutations, but Mm. four factors, whether it's a building that it's actually been illegal to use at any point, Mm -hmm. or whether it's been um, a building where the user, whether or not it's it the user under the lease, whether or not it's actually the user that the tenant wanted to make, was legal, but Mm. perhaps wasn't viable. Um, But also the whole thing about the way they're framed, whether you actually had to have COVID occur in the building in order for the provisions to apply. So that's got to shake down and that will make a huge difference one way or the other. Um, Personally, I don't see them bringing much joy for tenants in that respect. But I think the other thing that's going to be stored up and we will 
have to wait a bit longer to see is repair, disrepair. Mm-hmm. Lots of buildings have been left empty. Buildings mm-hmm. don't tend to fare very well <laughs> when they're not lived in and loved at least a little bit. Um, you know, and, and some places where they've been completely empty, there could be problems with legionnaires, stuff like that. But also just repairs that haven't been being done, that stocked up, and then someone's going to be arguing about whether it's now costing more because it wasn't done. And as I just said, you know, construction builders have still been working, so why hasn't it been done? So I can see there being probably not for another 12 months plus, actually probably two years after people start really going back into their buildings, but I can see that being a big problem. Mm -hmm. And in sectors where people are exiting leases, they don't Mm -hmm. want to renew, they don't want to remain, there's then going to be huge dilapidations arguments, it seems to me. And potential you know, break clause disputes, because as you mentioned, you, yep. I mean, your chambers, you're looking at, uh, you know, what your 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 need for, for property is going to be moving forward after, after, yep. after this experience. Yeah. And I you, mean, you're, fact, not, you're going to be far from alone. In fact, in our COVID year, because our lease was coming to an end, we have nego- managed to negotiate a new lease. We're moving buildings. We planned the fit out. The fit out works have just started. So actually for us, it's going to be a very exciting but weird thing that having all <laughs> left the building unexpectedly with many people not having been back um, in between. I think probably when we move into our new building in July, that will be when people come back. So they, they walked out of Hardwick building um, thinking they were going home for a few weeks <laughs> and they'll come back to a brand new building. So, I mean, for us, that makes it actually, as I said, it, it turns out to have been in a weird way, a really good time to be doing that. But uh, managing things takes a lot longer <laughs> under COVID conditions. Yes. Um, as and when, uh, you know, they're already starting, but uh, as these disputes come to court um, between landlords and tenants, what, what kind of approach do you foresee the courts taking uh, bearing in mind the, you know, the unprecedented situation. Well, the approach I'm certainly observing so far is, and there are, of course, always exceptions. There mm. are always maverick judges, et cetera, et cetera. But by and large, give a course an excuse, excuse to bat something off and it will. They're overrun, struggling, under-resourced. Mm. They were under-resourced before we went into this. Um, so it's not all about COVID, but COVID has you know, tripled the problem that was already a problem. Um, so the ability to delay for a party where that suits their agenda, I think, is going to unbalance and certainly shift from where we have been, where there's been that pressure to drive towards solution whether that's determination or otherwise, which encourage people into ADR. I think there's going to be more scope for people, frankly, shilly-shallying around and avoiding the the inevitable day. Um, So I I can see that being hugely problematic. And you do have to worry about low-value things where and how individuals who can't afford representation are actually going to cope in this new world where the vast majority is remote, et cetera, et cetera. It's all very well saying, well, you know, anyone can get online and and join a virtual hearing, but actually it's not that simple. And there is the thing about justice being seen to be done. Not that many people do wander into civil courts to watch. (laughs) And in theory, it could make it more 
accessible to people. If they could work mm. out how you can get the link, you can actually watch. If you're <laughs> yeah. bored at home with COVID, come and watch some court hearings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, making just making that a little bit more straightforward would definitely be a boon, certainly to someone who happens to be a legal journalist. Yes. <laughs> well, we can have a conversation about that because you open justice, you absolutely should be able to see things. Mm. And so they should be giving the link out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in addition, you, you're a highly experienced mediator. I mean, would you recommend that as as the productive way forward for landlords and tenants when it comes to matters of you know rent arrears and, and changing property requirements? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, one, I've always thought property was particularly suited to mediation mm-hmm. because it's not just about money. Mm. Um, in the way that many commercial disputes are. You have an ongoing relationship, you have a connection to a piece of land or building or buildings, and the sort of collection of interests, rights and burdens that you have around that piece of real estate can be adjusted and flexed in mediation to to do the sort of, you know, the, I don't know if you know, but the classic sort of bit of training in mediation, why it works is, is all around a factory and oranges and discovering that actually one person wants the juice and the other wants the zest. And so Mm. it's fine and there's a solution and everyone's happy rather than fighting over whether that batch of oranges is mine. You can both get what you want out of them. It's not that easy, but you can renegotiate and readjust what those interests, burdens, rights, etc. are in order to make it work better for the parties when that simply isn't something the court could give you on a particular dispute. Um, So absolutely, yes, mediation anyway for property disputes. Mm. It seems to me it's, it's even more appropriate than in others. Now it gives parties who want to resolve matters and not spend a fortune on legal fees an opportunity when, as I've said, the future looks like lengthening of time through from start to determination. Um, a quick way out will be mediation or private arbitrations. I suspect those will grow as well. Um, and in fact, I recently dealt with a mediation where there was an insoluble legal point with both parties standing their ground on it. And what we mediated was them taking that off for a private arbitration of the legal point Mm. to then come back and deal with the rest of the issues afterwards in mediation. So I think parties will certainly look to, it's effectively by default, privatising the justice process (laughs) um, in order to, to be able to then get on with their business. So looking sort of globally at, at, at the issues, the, the real estate issues arising out of the, the pandemic, what would your what would your sort of message to the, the, the wider uh, property sector be? Uh, you mean globally as in the whole sector, not yeah. the whole globe? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, to the sector, it would be be realistic and actually do mediate collaborate, negotiate, find ways forward because, and I spend my life advising against my own financial interests, litigation (laughs) rarely makes anyone happy. Mm -hmm. It makes one person a heck of a lot more pissed off than another, but it rarely makes either of them happy. And, you know, that's going to be all the more so. 
But in terms of litigators, I would say the future looks rosy. That's not great for our clients. That's never great for our clients. But there's going to be so many situations that deals didn't take, you know, I'm already seeing a lot of people trying to get out of conditional contracts or contracts with termination clauses. Can we exit? What do we need to do to maneuver ourselves to exit? Um, And there's just going to be more of that. Deals didn't take account of this possibility. And that's without even mentioning Brexit so far. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in many ways, I think that's for for real estate, not for other elements of commerce, but for real estate, Brexit, I don't think, is going to have an impact in the way COVID will. Mm -hmm. Uh, So moving on, you know, from direct uh, real estate matters. As we speak, we've just published uh, the findings of our third um, LGBTQ plus survey. And I know that diversity and inclusion are, are very important to you. you. You've been active with a number of uh, organisations, in, including as a, a Stonewall ambassador and a board member of Freehold. Isn't that right? Indeed. I've just stepped down. We have an mm-hmm. exciting new board, expanded and exciting board. And we're, you know, very much on uh, on a track of uh, succession planning and you know not having an old guard that's dictating we, we've served our time and taken it to where we could so we have new blood so freehold is going to go from strength to strength but yes I was on the board for mm-hmm. I think nine years eight nine years now that gives you you know a considerable uh, vantage point from which to survey how how things are going in the sector I mean our survey results do offer some positive signs but it, it seems that the, the pandemic has has stalled momentum a little bit when it comes to, to re- increasing diversity and in inclusion in real estate what is your personal impression of, of where we're at and, and how far we've come in the sector i think the sector has come a long way and it's done an element of catching up with some other sectors um when we started having conversations with big players um, they would say to us, we're fine, there's not a problem, we just don't have any gay people. And we'd sort of say, you've got X thousand employees, <laughs> X 10,000 employees, you've got gay people. Um, and now the conversation has moved on from that uh, and most of the big players are doing a lot mm-hmm. and it's you know it's the whole job isn't done um by any stretch but it's moving in the right direction but i think and your survey does show that covid or co- this covid year shall i put it that way <laughs> has seen a sliding backwards in terms of the experience of lgbtqi++ um people in the sector their confidence about their treatment in the sector and their confidence about their progression in the sector. And I think COVID is an element of that. Mm -hmm. Um, As a community, it is still, unfortunately, a community that um, significant proportions of do not have the family support and connection that most of the rest of the population has. Um, that feel the need of safe spaces that they've not been able to access in order to feel robust to deal with the stuff that does go on. But I think the other element has been 
the stepping back and backwards in terms of rights. So internationally, I think it's been brought home to people very strongly that hard fought for rights can be lost again. Um, so, you know, what happened in America, but also mm. here and the toxicity of and the now inability to talk about trans and trans issues without it becoming really difficult. And quite frankly, people with a whole range of views feeling like they can't say something. Mm -hmm. We then know we're in real trouble <laughs> when we can't talk about it and we can't deal with it. Um, so I think, you know, and people look at what's happening to trans, look at how the narratives reflect what was being said 10, 20 years ago about um, LGB mm. and think, well, is it coming back in the, the that direction? One, it's our trans siblings who are on the wrong end of this and that's not acceptable to me. Two, is it coming in my direction too? Is this where we're now going? So I think that for me, I think that that's a contributing factor as well as the isolation from COVID. Obviously, we still have so much work to do in terms of gender diversity and racial diversity as well. But is it does it pose more more of a challenge when it comes to LGBTQ plus rights that you don't have, you don't have that immediate visibility? There's there's an element of needing to disclose information yourself or to come out in order to be to be counted almost yeah. in the statistics. I, I've always thought, and as someone who in my profession as a barrister joining the bar in the mid 80s, so I had the visible difference <laughs> that I was female. <gasps> horror, horror, female doing civil work, horror, horror. Um, and, and then there's the fact I'm pansexual. So, you know, I have a visible and a not visible. Mm -hmm. um, and within any characteristic, we assume for instance, that gender and ethnicity are visible, but actually they're not always. A lot of people's ethnicity isn't visible. Mm -hmm, We've true. made an assumption about mm -hmm. what their ethnicity is. We can be badly, badly wrong. Um, but the, the mechanisms of being other and othered, feeling safe, the impact on you of the ways that your workplace, your society, treat the group that you are part of operate differently depending whether your uh, involvement in that group is visible or invisible but there are similarities in terms of how it actually affects a human being to feel that exclusion mm. you know do i am i excluded every time i walk into a room because everyone can see i don't belong here or am I excluded because I can walk in the room and I can mix with these people who engage with me and then say a truly homophobic thing with no appreciation that I'm part of that group. So, you know, they're, they're different. And we all, if you experience being other in whatever way, have to be and learn from that, that you can't fully understand another group's experience or another individual's experience but perhaps it makes you understand how some of the things operate and might impact them. I'm not sure that answered your question. 
And I think it did. And and obviously, I imagine you've seen you've seen your particular pre- profession change dramatically since you entered it. Um, Too many decades ago. <laughs> Um, And some of our survey findings were that the law uh, as an individual subsector is is leading the way within property. Uh, Legal and consultancy, I think, were the the two most LGBTQ plus positive areas in property. Mm. Uh, Why do you think that has happened? I I imagine, you know, you played your own significant role in in that development. And and what can the rest of real estate learn from the legal profession? Um, I think... I'm also going to give credit to Interlaw. Mm-hmm. So I think across the legal, certainly the solicitor side of the legal profession, um, at, and certainly London, um, Interlaw has had a huge impact um, in terms of LGBTQ, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and has, yeah, I mean, they, they've absolutely been on it. They've been very active around gender and ethnicity as well. Um, So having very vocal um, pressure groups that that are there, I think, understanding in a sophisticated way the way the sector works and the way you can achieve cultural change. You know, that there's not any one thing that you need to do that you need to provide visible role models, mm-hmm. that you need to um, actually give people some insight into human experience. Most people start to get it from understanding someone's story mm-hmm. um, or from their own. You know, Something that's close and that touches them and they start to realise how someone else is experiencing something. Um, but also encouraging collaboration to spread best practice. You know, you might have one organisation that's really good at one particular aspect and then they see that another organisation is doing something else and it's like, oh, and we can do that too or we can put that together. So that sort of collaboration and sharing of ideas and experience of what works, what makes a difference and people waking up to the fact that in their midst they had some very talented people who've actually been uncomfortable most of their professional lives and could have been even more talented and (laughs) done even better if only they'd have made it apparent so I think once once that work and those conversations start and people start seeing the benefits you have both the realization that it's for the good of your organization but frankly also the competition you don't want to be seen to be behind your competitors Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's where Freehold's success has been as an agitator to support and collaborate and also create a bit of competition in just the way that Interlaw did across the whole of the solicitor's profession. Mm. My profession, the bar's been a little bit slower off the ground, but we're getting there. But there are still, you know, far too many people out there who don't believe there is an issue or they dismiss those uh, of us who who are concerned about diversity and inclusion with with sort of labels like woke. Um, I'll give you you, I'll give you a very good business example of why it should matter, even if you don't think if it doesn't matter to you on a human level, whether or not everyone can fulfill their potential. So I'm very involved in Freebar, which is a bar-related network, 
and at our first event, uh, one of the senior clerks who's very active, who is gay, saw a young barrister um, and had a conversation with him and, and sort of said, I, I think we met before. I think you came for an interview at my set. And the barrister said, yes. And he said, um, in fact, I think you were our first choice. Yes. And you didn't come to us. Why didn't you come to us? And this young barrister smiled and said, to be honest, because I didn't think I would be welcomed as a gay man in your set. Now, the senior clerk in that set was mm -hmm. gay, but he wasn't out. <laughs> there was nothing in the set. You know, some people in chambers knew, but it wasn't mm -hmm. a sort of obvious thing. And so this barrister who they had thought was the best one they saw that year and they wanted didn't go to them because mm. it wasn't apparent it would be a welcoming place they lost talent because of that so even if you don't get any of the other reasons that's the reason you lose yeah. talent mm -hmm. never and mind business from clients who don't feel it's a safe place for them mm -hmm. and and for those people out there who, who want to be allies but don't that feel that maybe they're, they're worried about saying the wrong thing or, or how to go about it. I mean, what, what would you say to them? I would say to them what I say to myself about being an ally in the trans space. Get over yourself. <laughs> Own your responsibility for being an ally. Own the fact you may get it wrong. Be open and frank about that. Say, I'm sorry if I'm getting this wrong. Is this what? Have I got the right language? Actually, all you have to have as your driver is being respectful and a bit of humility mm -hmm. and being prepared to say, look, I really want to make this work for all of us. <laughs> Have I got this right? Mm -hmm. If you're prepared to take the risk of getting it wrong and be told you've got it wrong, then you're on the road to being a good ally. But at the end of the day, we all know whoever you are everybody has had the experience of feeling like you're in a space you're not wanted or you're in a space where you don't belong or you're in a space that doesn't see you and doesn't understand you and even for people who have that as a very rare event they will still have had it happen somewhere mm. they walked into the wrong room at a wedding you know somewhere where there were two weddings and they walked into the wrong one or something you know um, imagine living that mm. you know, and then think about how can I make that space feel more welcoming, invite people in, make it clear that people are invited in. Very well put. Um, thank you. And um, is there anything either about real estate or, or about diversity and inclusion that, that you were hoping I was going to ask you that I haven't asked you? Um, I suppose... You could have asked me, we do, you know, there's more and more being done, more to be done about role models, about, you know, networks supporting people. What is the next phase? What mm -hmm. what else has to happen? Um, and for me, the next phase, which is starting to happen, well, the next two, the, the one that's starting to happen is senior engagement, senior responsibility and accountability. Mm -hmm. um, so more and and I'm talking about this across diversity and, and in my head it's particularly related in fact to race mm -hmm. 
more responsibility of seniors to step up, have the difficult conversations, because let's face it, most of us white people are scared of talking about race. <laughs> and until we get over it and own it as actually it's a white issue and a white problem and we Absolutely, have to get yeah. past ourselves and have honest discussions about it. So leaders doing that and then committing to be public about how well their organisations are and are not doing, where they're aiming to get them and being held to account about whether they get them there. Um, and then we'll move on in my fantasy world to debunking the myth that is meritocracy and to being honest about the fact that well, there isn't an objective assessment of merit and we're constantly trying trying to make sure the inevitably subjective process of evaluating who we recruit, how well people are doing, that we're, we just have to be honest, that we're constantly trying to take the distorted, unfair subjectivity out of it and make it fairer and fairer and fairer, rather than pretending because we got to the top, that it is purely objective mm. and that's why I'm here. Absolutely. And before we wrap up, uh, I do have to ask you about some of your other interests. Uh, okay. <laughs> your chamber's bio uh, yeah. it lists your preferred form of transport as a motorcycle. Absolutely. Currently uh, a Triumph Bonneville T100, mm -hmm. a beautiful, you'll be surprised given my love of colour, um, old fashioned English white and tangerine motorbike. Oh, wow. Fantastic. <laughs> And uh, you also enjoy activities like bungee jumping, roller coasters, body flying. Yes. I'm, I'm a, a huge fellow roller coaster enthusiast. I oh, are we off to Alton Towers? Uh, <laughs> I, I would love I to. I, in the UK. Yes, when absolutely. The, when they reopen. Yeah, there was, a, there was a period of about 15 years where um, we had quite a group in chambers and we had a, mm -hmm. a there was a skiing group that go off every year. Mm hmm and um a few of us decided we'd had enough of that so we started our um roller coaster group and we would go on a sunday up to alton towers stay in the hotel overnight so we had sunday and monday fantastic love it if you, if you ever open that up to guests uh, <laughs> <laughs> and you're, 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 you're also lo uh, love to travel to, to far-flung places including the north pole iran and kurdistan yes yes i have swum at the north pole wow that was quite an experience. It was um, on a Russian nuclear icebreaker. I have to admit that turned my sort of head around in terms of nuclear power and realising actually how environmentally friendly it was in that environment in the sense that it's ordinary working had mm. very little impact. But it did break through the ice and they did at the North Pole smash uh, a hole so we could <laughs> go sw swimming. And he had a rope around your middle and I should say I'm teetotal. So you were supposed to jump in and swim. And the second you stopped moving, they yanked you out with mm -hmm. the rope. Mm -hmm. um, they didn't get to do that to me, I have to say. Um, <laughs> and then they tried to make me drink vodka afterwards, which <laughs> one I was never going to do because I can't bear the taste of alcohol, <laughs> which is why I don't drink. But two, if I understand what alcohol does to the body, it's not very sensible either. Mm. <laughs> not, not in those so, situations. Yeah. So I, I, the, with all with all these interests, I imagine that the last year has been particularly hard on you. I mean, you must be jumping at the bit. It has been to, very hard, but we developed um, our own way of doing virtual days out, mm -hmm. Paula and I, 
Um, so it involves a lot of food from a particular nationality, um, finding walking tours and things on, you, on uh, YouTube for places in a particular country and watching documentaries and films that relate to the country and have a day immersing ourselves in another place so that you can feel like you've stepped off this COVID world for 24 hours at least. I hope you enjoyed the latest EG interview and many thanks to Bree for joining me. You have been listening to the EG Property Podcast.